This is the Arise podcast with your hosts, Danielle Castillejo and Maggie Hemphill. Conversations around faith, race, justice, gender, and healing. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you may have noticed that we made a change in our tagline. We felt looking back over these last three seasons that mental health, healing, and wellness were woven throughout, and we wanted to reflect that in our tagline. In this episode, Danielle chats with Jenny McGrath and Abby Wong Hefter to talk about the early 90s purity culture movement and its lasting impacts on sex, sexuality, gender, and race. Let me introduce our guests. Jenny McGrath is a licensed mental health counselor who does somatic psychotherapy and teaches movement. She offers online courses and classes to help individuals find their way back to their body. She is passionate about helping folks who grew up in fundamental Christianity work through deconstruction in a way that honors their faith and their body. She is researching purity culture and Christian nationalism by focusing on the impacts of purity culture on people's subjective experience as well as the social impacts of the movement. You can learn more about Jenny and her work at indwellmovement.com. Our second guest, Abby Wong Hefter, grew up in the Pacific Northwest with a first-generation Chinese father and a white mother. Her experience in the evangelical church and Christian education had her often in the experience of being a minority and haunted with a feeling of being on the outside. Abby is passionate about freedom for people at the cross-sections of sexual and spiritual abuse, race, and our longing to belong. She currently teaches at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, as well as the Allender Center for Trauma and Abuse. Her primary work is offering psychotherapy where she specializes in the experience of transracial adopted adults, childhood sexual abuse survivors, and those addressing racial identity. She also supervises new clinicians in a narrative approach and consults and coaches organizations working towards liberation. And now for our conversation. On that note, let's talk about purity culture. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I sent uh, Danielle the music video, the salt and pepper. Let's talk about sex, baby. (laughs) I think we should do a music video to this. (laughs) Oh, the number of songs that I loved when I was younger and felt so guilty about them, like Your Body is a Wonderland by John Mayer. I was like, oh, I love this song. I'm not supposed to like this song. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Everything salt and pepper. I was like, oh, this is so good. You're such a sinner. <laughs> totally. It was really cool. I was like reading the comments on it of on uh, YouTube and someone was like, it just now hit me like this was in the midst of the AIDS crisis. And for them to be doing this was so powerful. And I was like, oh heroes like amazing (laughs) yeah I never thought about that I heard those songs too like I was introduced to them through a friend that wasn't at like not at my church she was at a different church and she introduced me to quote-unquote secular music and it was like salt and pepper and who else I don't remember who else at the moment yes (laughs) (laughs) and I was like I could not stop listening to it I it just felt like yes this is this resonates with me Mm -hmm. whereas it was right and good for me to have Michael W. Smith poster in my room like it was totally fine for me to have a crush 
on an older married man because <laughs> that's legit Christian music. <laughs> oh, painful. <laughs> Who came up with this shit? Oh, I'm pretty sure Jenny has an answer to that one. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, it was a conglomerate, like in the. In, I mean, I guess probably one of the biggest attributors to it is um, the organization True Love Waits, and they started their campaign in 1993 and had hundreds of thousands of young people in Washington, D.C. with little cards pledging their purity, their virginity, and like staking them into government land and saying that this is what needs to happen. And so it became cool in that movement then to have purity rings, to go to these purity conferences, and then even in that same movement, then there was like the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye and just all of these things, primarily like within just a few years in the 90s that just exploded in evangelical Christian world. And it feels like it was built upon James Dobson and like where there, it, it feels like maybe the first time within the Christian world that parenting was being addressed, um, kind of in a how-to, um, like raise your ch- children to be godly, um, like almost providing manuals. And I feel like focus on the family really started creating that sense of um, what's appropriate and inappropriate senses of touch and that massages lead to sex and dancing leads to sex. and. So it felt like purity culture had like a good platform to build off of. Totally. Yep. And focus on the family was just a foundation for the churches I was in growing up for how to view family. Yep. Totally. Mm -hmm. And a very, very narrow, white, heteronormative, patriarchal view of family that there was like James Dobson talked about how he didn't agree with interracial marriage because people were unequally yoked and so many racist messages in what quote-unquote family focus on the family was always this undercurrent for focus on the white Christian patriarchal heteronormative family yeah I think I think for me as I've like been able to listen to you or others or read books about it I it's almost like going back and saying that's why I never felt at peace in any of these Mm. places with my parents or that's I mean it's another layer to my story but it's it's interesting to me because it makes it feel less crazy making it makes it feel the interactions my family had like less crazy and more like, oh, it was designed to be this way. Well, and I think it's just if we're going to talk about like where purity culture and race converge, it feels like another place where at least as um, like female identifying people, 
the vision was cast, at least in the books that I was introduced to um, as like a late high school, early college, always painted this like knight in shining armor. And it was always like the the damsel who needs to be pure, virginal, was always um, like a Northern European um, female. And so I think it, it was the place where whole, like the idea of holiness and goodness and like being chosen um, met this, this standard and ideal that I could never fit. And so it felt like, well, where I can put my energy and have control is around being pure. I can't change my like outward appearance, but I can make myself more desirable by being really rigid with these rules. Yeah, Jenny, it feels like I can see your brain calculating. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it just, I hear in that such a setup for continued like perpetuation of harm you know like like what I hear you saying and you can tell me if this is wrong is like the only kind of access to power I had was disempowering my own agency and my own body like like taking any sense of mate choice or sexual desire off the table was the only thing that like kept me safe in this system and how that then just strips you of agency and voice and consent and yeah and I think that that other language which wasn't necessarily what I grew up with but was it was um close enough there there was like proximity to the language that's familiar of the Jezebel so where there could be any sense of power um even in just being able to flirt that had already been deemed like so I mean I can't think of a worse honestly a worse word within Christian culture to be called than a Jezebel so it I think where young people are, I think, meant to learn how to bring their sexuality and play with it and explore. And I don't just mean like in their actual physical acts, but just in the way they relate to one another. I was like, it, it, it became really, really clear to me that either I would be made fun of because I wasn't doing it right, or I would be told that I was some form of a slut if I flirted. And so, and I, again, I think that's a place where we come into our power is by learning how to bring ourselves sexually into the world. Yeah. Yep. And how it's not compartmentalized, you know, how we show up sexually is intertwined with how we show up in all of these other areas. And so it just, takes away any sense of freedom or curiosity and just this, you know, I, I, I think for myself, you know, as a a white woman, I really did fit that stereotype of quote unquote purity. And, and I, I led to a sense of needing to be dissociated. Because whether it was flirting or whether it was enjoying a PG-13 movie or whether it was all of these things, then there was just immediately shame and judgment and hours of needing to journal to purge my sin. 
And so the only thing that felt safe was just being completely disconnected from sensuality, from eroticism, from life, from all of those things that I think are so interconnected with being sexual and embodied beings. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about that, I think I feel like we stray into gender and I, I feel the, you know, I feel the, you know, in the op in the not opposite, but in the same vein, just as a child that had been, you know, traumatized sexually, I, I grew up with a sense, like, I will always have to ask for forgiveness for this and I will never attain forgiveness and so then the repeated feeling in church of like, will I even get to heaven at this point? You know, because it was so, it was so strong in my youth group to what was pure, what is meant to be pure. And there was no talk about what had happened to you or like framing, you know, for trauma or sexual abuse or sexual harm. That was all just lumped in with the same boat. So at that point, at that point, you know, someone, a kid that's been through that, and in this case, myself, you're always just striving for something, even if you know you can never get there, like not in your church framework. So it was a little bit maddening. And eventually, honestly, I just kind of gave up. I was like, well, I'm not going to get there. So, but I know other people that, you know, in some sense, I would say even like chained themselves to, you know, in a more direct way to, you know, purifying themselves, whether it was through eating or exercise, you know, just that kind of despair feeling that comes from, I can never be pure. So how do I get rid of this thing that happened to me? Even the language is, is so crazy making because at least in when I, again, think of like youth group or I went to a Christian high school. So I'm thinking about the, um, lack of sex education I had and the like cutesy form cutesy is the word that feels really important because it feels like purity culture is married to this really false naivete like that doesn't acknowledge that like let's be honest one out of two kids has been sexually abused um that treats us like we come in with this um like lack of experience in the world um, as teenagers. And then all of a sudden we like have th this opportunity to, to become pure or to make sure we ensure our purity, which I just don't think it honors what's already, what, what children have already experienced and been exposed to. Um, and it, it required this idea of staying really ignorant then for a kid like you, Danielle, like you're going to feel like so much an outcast because you already know something of this thing that they're talking about. Like it's, I don't know, a Disney cartoon. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's like, you already know the end of the story. You, you know, more than your teacher and you know, and it's like, you're not supposed to know that. And they know you're not supposed to know that. So it's, it's, you know, it's very, it can keep, well, it's very like, and I think of the words like trapped or chained or, you know, just binding to, to that source of additional harm. Damien is the word that's coming to mind. Mm -hmm. 
And it makes me think of, like you mentioned, it's such gendered, very normative categories of gender. You know, I think that that's the message that so many folks who were socialized as girls experienced. And then there was people that were socialized as male that were say, they were told, you are going to perpetrate harm. You, you're not in control of your sexuality. And so then who would identify as he like feels so threatening like they're going to cause harm because they're told they're not going to be able to control themselves and then you have this entire spectrum in between those that that have no language or or aren't seen in their experience of non-binary or gender fluid that there's no there's no teaching about what it means to be in a body that doesn't fit into these very binary categories of gender. Yeah, I was listening to um, something yesterday on the radio about um, just the setup for um, the queer and and gay community in the 80s. Um, And so as you're talking about the, the... non or the experience of like I only have these two options just thinking of like this thing we're talking about is so big and bumps up against so many different places of injustice and and where purity culture is part of oppression and then of course it's going to create more oppression for people who are already oppressed Cause it gives a false sense that you can accomplish something and gain power. Um, it wouldn't have been as intoxicating as it was if, it, if it weren't for the sense that you could be more powerful if you were, if you were quote unquote pure. And then there's so many of us that couldn't actually get there. And so I immediately think of non-binary and trans and queer folks that are like, I can't even imagine what it would be like to sit through sermons or lectures on what it means to be pure because you're immediately like I there's nothing I can do here outside of becoming a eunuch which is the other language that I feel like is so often highlighted like there's again there's words that I think that have been weaponized so that we know where we need to stay in order to be right and good I mean when you think about it it was often a like a white male pastor preaching these messages to like young teens. And when you dig into some of these leaders stories, you find that they never held themselves to this standard. When you hear your parents' stories, you realize this was not what they held themselves to, even coming out of the same faith tradition. So it's almost like these white leaders were able to like reenact their own kingdoms Mm -hmm. to like maintain their own power in these, in these churches or youth groups or whatever, like these mini power centers. Mm -hmm. That's just what came to mind as you were talking, because you can gain a lot of power and control over, you know, a lot of diverse groups in that scenario. Right. And it makes me think of what you were saying earlier, Danielle, of like, if you're told you're going to be like chewed up gum and your only value isn't valuable anymore, if you have sex, 
or any type of sexual experience, then when you're a survivor of sexual abuse, you're not going to tell anybody, you're not going to go to anybody because you know, in that world, that means you're spoiled rather than having full language around this doesn't take anything from your dignity, your value, your worth, this isn't anything you've done that's wrong. And so then it just perpetuates this system that enables abuse and preying on victims because perpetrators know that victims have nowhere to go to have nuanced, caring conversations in that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think you're speaking to that sense of like, of how it just created such a foundation for exploitation. And, and I certainly know within my work that there is such a significant um, place of, of kind of all, all the intersections coming together around, um, I think, again, why purity culture can be really compelling. I'm thinking about like kids or those of us that have felt some sense of not belonging some sense of orphanness, um, of, of not experiencing someone attuning to us. And the idea that like, I can more or less be contained and parented within this set of norms and rules. And then, so that's like one level of vulnerability that somebody already had. And then if you add in places again, like, um, race, gender, um, sexual orientation, um, neurodivergence, like all of the different places where there's marginalization um, and sexual abuse, which again, we know is prolific. It's just like, it's a hot mess of where I I have heard again and again with people I work with um, the experience as an adult of being betrayed by purity culture because they were saving themselves and someone that is in the know of that language like it's grooming them is like, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to, I'm going to help you become pure. Um, like that is such a normal way that predators work with, within the, the vocabulary and the, um, yeah, the ways that they're just savvy with purity culture. You want to sexually exploit people. That's a prime place to find, find people that are really vulnerable. It makes me think of too, you know, like we were talking about James Dobson or focus on the family and how it's all part of this system of the Christian right. And I think it's really important to know even, you know, there's there's often this myth that it is um, because of abortion that the the religious right exists. When really it was even before the 80s in the 70s, when Bob Jones University was going to lose their tax exempt status because they were discriminating against students of color, that Jerry Falwell and the religious right formed in order to fight against what they were calling religious freedom in the name of discrimination. And so from its very origin, it was this system of upholding racism in the name of Christianity 
And so I think purity culture is just a new reiteration of what was happening and what had gained a lot of power in this like Christian nationalism movement. Yeah, when you say when you when you define it, even though I read, you know, I read um Kristen Cobes, Demez, that how you say her name, um John Wayne and what's it called? Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. When I think about it's not that I haven't heard the information, but when I rehear it again every time, I'm always just kind of like shut down and it it's staggering that there there have been re- reiterations of this since the first invasion into this into this land that we're calling the United States um, of where sex and race and um, has been married to religion and I won't say faith because I don't feel like it's faith I feel like it's religion that's how I would that's how I think about it um, and, and so I'm just I'm just struck by the need to continually reinvent this to maintain power and how, you know, here we are in 2022 and we're dealing with the after effects, not of just, we're dealing with centuries, but we're also dealing with like, like you said, like 1970s, 1980s. And then it's still circulating in churches and communities today. And, and they're still coming into our, you know, our offices as therapists today. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, I'm just, I know I'm just like kind of a broader picture, but I'm just struck by how the legacy of harm has continued and just how hard it is actually to break into that system and just say no more or take yourself out of it and say, I'm not going to participate in it this way. Well, it again, just reminds me of the absurdity of how the distortion of Jesus um, in, in the sense that the Christian right is very, very committed to policing bodies. Like, isn't that what purity culture is, is a way for our bodies to be policed. And it's, it, it, in my understanding and reading of the gospels, it's so opposite of who Jesus was. Um, but again, I think it's, I think it's, a way that there has been so much power gained for a particular group of people. It wouldn't be reinvented if it wasn't working. Right. Exactly. So come to our workshop. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's why we continue to talk about it. Well, I mean, I, I wonder for even each of us, like how many years, how much time has, has it taken for us to detox from this, this message that was so thorough, like how, even as like people that are working actively daily with people to be part of their liberation from it, are we still like having to, you know, seek our own therapy, go on yoga retreats, um, do all these things to like keep enforcing like the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of our arousal, the goodness of our desire. Um, Cause I know that I still, especially in raising teenagers, it's like, I, I can feel the ghosts of it um, that I have to constantly fight. I think that's what makes it so insidious and so powerful 
you know, is that when you're hearing all of these messages from the time you're a child and and you're like, if I question these, my eternity is hanging in the balance, you know, and it's that like ingrained fear of hell, of punishment, of damnation, much less all of the like fear mongering that's done with what's going to happen if you have sex with someone that you're not married to or outside of these normative categories. Like there's so much fear that like, like you're speaking to, it takes forever. I'm still working on it and still like continually having to work through all of those implicit messages. Even if my head believes something, my physiological response often is something totally different. I, I agree because even in like, I would say one of my most basic secure relationships, like with all the ups and downs with my partner and just us talking through even like who does the finances and talking through like what, and I remember at the beginning feeling like we had a set of norm and expectation for ourselves that I was like, you have to do the finances. You're the man. And he was like, okay. (laughs) And it didn't work. Not because he's not capable, but he hated it. He didn't want to be good at it. And I remember one day he was just like, this is nowhere in the Bible. He told me. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like who told us this? Like, that's just one example of, of norms or the way our bodies are together in certain spaces. Like So I think of all the little things that, you know, we are constantly, Luis and I even are like renegotiating to find out like, oh, that's not actually in the Bible. Jesus never said that. And why do we feel like if we do it a different way, we have terror in our bodies from it? And I know that's not necessarily purity culture, but I think it goes back to just those norms that we're living into. Our bodies are trying to constrict. And they're not meant to. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder, Jenny, if you, in your research have come across like where purity culture also meets the like post world war two, like the idea of the white picket fence and the, the standard of gender roles and, um, specifically like what a good woman is and what her duties are and where she's confined to. Cause they, they do feel so intertwined the sense of, um, well, I am the, I am the woman, so I'm supposed to do these things. Um, totally. Yeah. And it's, um, the more I've, I've researched, the more I've had to go further and further back in time and really even look at kind of the the creation of the bourgeoisie woman and in kind of pre-US history and the idea of always this European white woman and protecting, you know, our very first colony was Virginia because the queen was supposedly a virgin like and and <laughs> this is happening and there's this hyper emphasis on white women's virginity and purity 
while we know settler colonial men were raping and abusing indigenous women throughout all of the Americas. And so there's always been, and, and the, the justification for that, whether it was indigenous women or it was enslaved African women, was that they were Jezebels and you couldn't rape someone who always wanted to have sex. Mm-hmm. And so it was this justification of harming women of color while needing to create this distinction of what is proper. And so white women were very much and are very much complicit in this system through the disembodiment and the disavowal of agency and autonomy and sexuality that perpetuates these tropes and these gender and racial norms um, that I think got got even more infused after World War II because the GI Bill expanded what white meant. So like before the GI Bill, Polish people were not white. Irish people were not white. There was this distinction of a very specific thing. And even that was created in the 1800s. And so when the white idea expanded, it kind of brought in this idea of like you're talking about like skirts and casseroles and all of these like these ideas of what being a white woman meant in it to continue to separate people of color not being able to get home loans through the GI Bill because of redlining and continuing this disparity. Yeah, and I feel like even as you explore the history, it brings me immediately to what happened last spring in Atlanta with the shooting of the six Asian women um, by a man who basically claimed like that purity culture is is what forced him to become mentally ill and ultimately like justified him acting out in such atrocious violence. But again, I think it's that place where there's the convergence of race and purity culture and, and that the idea that women of color, particularly in that situation, Asian women are, um, both like meek and, um, submissive and demure and also can be wild tigers. Um, and so there's these ideas of, what women of color offer sexually that's different than what white women offer. And access mm-hmm. to the body of a woman of color is quick. And, and at least I think I'm not saying like literally physically all the time, but at least mentally to go there, there's an access point that's quick. And, and there's, and like, I hear you describing, like there's permission to do that mm-hmm. built in. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think also of like, you know, again, this protecting the family at the same time that our our government is forcefully removing indigenous children from their mothers and putting them into the foster care system and um, like missing and murdered indigenous women. And, and what you're saying, Abby, like continued Asian hate crimes and and crimes against all different bodies of color and the LBGTQ community that aren't 
protected under this myth and this guise of for the family, keeping families together. And I think we saw that acutely with Atlanta because it's it wasn't only the legal system that allowed this man to walk away. It was, I mean, he didn't walk away. I mean, but like walk off the scene without being killed. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he walked away in that sense alive. And, and, and it was also just the silence across, you know, religious circles and faith circles and, you know, justification and talk about even the fact that Abby, we know why he justified the murders, like why there's, but why yeah, people immediately felt badly for him. Like, oh, he's struggling with a sex addiction. Um, because I, I, again, think I'm going to go on a little patriarchal rant. Um, I, I think that that even when we go back to our youth groups, that the and I'm not suggesting that purity culture didn't wreak havoc on male bodies as well. Um, but I think the sense that we are we are to feel badly for this thing that's out of control in them that makes us dangerous. Um, like it, it just feels like it gives so much permission for again us to. I, I don't remember who I've clearly dissociated from it, but there was someone in power. I think it was a sheriff who, who made an excuse for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that didn't surprise me. It felt like it came from that same vein that we make excuses for white men doing violence, mm-hmm. acting out sexually. I had the same thought about youth group where the youth pastor can share a struggle with pornography ongoing and that, that youth pastor, and I'm not saying maybe they don't personally struggle, but I was never under the impression that they were in danger of not going to heaven or never under the impression that there was any, it was kind of expected. Like I remember hearing stats at church. Well, you know, like one in three pastors struggle with this because they're so focused on being pure. They get tempted so much. And what it and what it led to and what it has led to is just a permission to do not just the violence in those situations, but, you know, murders. They're, it's concretized in these murders in Atlanta and elsewhere, too. Mm-hmm. But just the blank check. I mean, you can make a bet if a woman of color walks into a porn shop and sees seven white men and shoots them. She's not getting out alive. No way. There's no way. I mean, we have examples of that. I mean, there's a case actively in Texas right now. I don't remember her name, but a young woman of color is like 17. This has happened more than once in Texas recently, but she's up. She's in jail for murdering her trafficker. And, you know, she's, I think she's like life in prison. I have to look up her name. I can put it. I can talk about it more later, but I just read the article about their petitioning to, you know, to have the case reevaluated, retried, um, but she was being trafficked by this man and killed him and, you know, was sent to jail. I feel like that story is probably so prolific, Mm -hmm. something, a story like that. Mm I can almost imagine someone listening to us going like, why are they talking about murders when they were supposed to be talking about purity culture? Mm -hmm. Because I I just don't, 
I know this is a hot topic right now. Like I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about spiritual abuse, sexual abuse and where they meet. Um, but I just don't, I don't know if people are making, like making the connections, um, of how something that's again, seems really innocent. Like I'm thinking about how it was taught to me in my high school. Literally it was, um, um, peaches, plums, and alfalfa. And it was like, you're in the, like, you're still in the clear, like you could still be pure if you gave a peach kiss, which is very, when you say the word peach, it's fast and it's little. When you say plum, it's slower and there's more lip to it. And alfalfa, it requires your tongue. And we were like, literally told what was like, which ones, obviously you're just supposed to peach. That's until you're married, peaching only. And I'm like, that, like that language is for toddler. It's ridiculous. It's like talking about the farm. <laughs> you're talking about sex. So I just, I feel like there's a way that we can even be blind to this bigger picture that this thing that was so treated, treated like with kid gloves actually led to something that can be like so atrocious and insidious and like really ruin people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I might argue that I think it's by design that there's this infantilizing that then perpetuates these systems because you're not meant to question. You're not meant to think about it. You're meant to stay emotionally young and then therefore just be handed off to whoever is the next white male that's going to tell you what to do. And I think that's arguably how, at least in part, how we've gotten to where we've gotten to politically, because there is this enforced naivete that you're supposed to have to be in that system and not think critically and not think empathetically. And I think that 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 innocence, quote unquote, is what what produces and perpetuates these murders and systemic oppression that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not past the plum peaches and alfalfa i'm like what the (laughs) seems like the appropriate response when it was i mean what you're just saying jenny like made me think about like how many people and i include myself here that didn't know anything about hpv because it was like you don't need to know about that because you're just gonna like wait until marriage and you're gonna marry a virgin and so you don't have to worry about that and like the danger that 95% or more of the adult population has HPV and that women can die of cervical cancer from it. And I know, so again, so many people raised in purity culture where they, they weren't ever taught about your body and like that, you know, maybe they know about STDs, but they don't know these things that are, that again, can be life and death. Right. Mm-hmm. You just have this giant safety net that you're just never going to do it. Uh-huh. Right. And and statistically, like in places like Texas or other places that are so concentrated in purity culture and abstinence-only education, there's way higher rates for teen pregnancy and STDs 
because if you have a condom on hand, then you're planning it. So that's bad. But if it accidentally happens and you don't know what you're doing, then it's justifiable. And so it's not that sex doesn't happen. It's just that it doesn't happen in safe ways when kids and adults aren't educated on how to be safe about it. That makes me want to scream. (laughs) Or grab someone by the shoulders and shake them Mm -hmm. awake. Like those are the feelings I have. And that's not even to mention that, you know, starting with Reagan and then again with Bush, the government gave billions of dollars to abstinence-only faith-based, quote-unquote, education programs that went to Christian and public schools. And, and so we there's such a, this evidence of Christian nationalism. Like if you think about any other religion saying we're going to go into school and teach sex education or lack thereof, that would never happen. But there's like this blindness when it is in the name of Christianity, that it's then okay in this country. And my mind just goes to like, when you reference Reagan, just where, again, there's the timing of abstinence um, being taught in schools and the war on drugs and all of it is very much um, favoring white bodies and very much policing and potentially um, incriminating bodies of color. Meanwhile, making sure the cocaine routes from Colombia to the United States weren't disrupted because of arms trade deals. I mean, so the idea that that in itself, that Reagan or the right in itself was pure, they made trades. And I think going back to what uh, Jenny said, those trades were, it was clearly systemic oppression of bodies of color and also like you're literally saying like all these white bodies can just do drugs like mm-hmm. and that and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So it it's yeah, there's a lot of f words in my mind. Uh-huh. Well, well before he was president, Reagan signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in California. And yet was became president because of the religious right, because he was going after the IRS for trying to go after Bob Jones University for being racist. And so even his rise to presidency and the power that he had was because of systemic racism and oppression of bodies of color. And so then it just gets woven into all of these abstinence only purity systems. Which I mean, brings me to today and the idea that Trump could win in 2024 and that it is built on, you know, a resurgence of some of these doctrines. Well, and that was what was coming to mind when you said, I just want to shake someone, Danielle. It's like, I, we, you, you would have to, because indoctrination means that you've lost your mind. Like you don't have your own mind mm-hmm. and in order to 
break free to have access to your own thoughts and being able to challenge something like you have to almost be taken out of a trance. Yeah. Which makes this conversation important. And yet it can also feel despairing Mm -hmm. because I don't know if it will be blunt enough, you know, even as blunt as we've been. Right. Or easy to dismiss because we're just being passionate liberals. Yeah. Oh, Jenny. Oh, I was just going to say, like, like you were saying, Abby, like, you know, that's who I see Jesus as. He's <laughs> like a passionate brown socialist liberal. Who's taking people by their shoulders. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I guess if that's what I get accused of, I'm all right with that. And I, I hope that then that leads to something, you know, because I do think it is, it is traumatizing to walk away from these beliefs or to have really believed your whole life you were the good guy. And then to like have this paradigm shift and really see how, like how I've perpetuated harm against LBGTQ bodies and bodies of color as being part of that system. It is so hard and this identity crisis. And I would much rather go through that than continue to perpetuate those systems. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think on a more like individual level, it just was like a hot bed for shame. Like I'm in my own shame. And then while I'm in a relationship with someone else, I'm also going to like heap shame on them as we're both trying to battle this like war against our own, again, desire and the enlivening of our bodies. So I'm like thinking about moments where it would be like, we have to stop. And then we just both shame each other to get back in line. Mm-hmm. It like fed on shame. Yeah. And it makes me think of like the, the neuroscience phrase, what fires together, wires together. And then you have most of your sexual experiences are arousal, wiring and coupling with shame. And then there's this lie of like, but as soon as you're married, that shame's not going to be there. 